Claire, listen, it's note for note. Same tempo, even the same key. What do you think? I don't know. It's a startling coincidence. But that melody must have been very popular at one time, or it wouldn't be on the music box. I agree, but I swear I never heard it before I played it and recorded it that day you came over. No, there's something, something. It's happened before here. I'm not the first. No. I went over the files very carefully, all the way back to 1920. Nothing out of the ordinary. Miss Huxley. Oh, Minnie's a highly eccentric old woman, but she'd never... Mm. She said the house didn't want people. She's mistaken. Whatever it is, is trying desperately to communicate. The bangings, the water taps, the broken window panes, all the glass fell outwards. It had to be done from the inside. Everything that's happened has been designed to get me into that attic room. podcast exploring faith and fear, what scares us and what saves us. This is The Fear of God. Hello and welcome back to a brand new Fear of God. Literally and figuratively, this is the podcast exploring the intersection of faith and fear, where every single week, except the ones we don't, we discuss what scares us in order to find what saves us. Yes, this is the Fear of God podcast. Speaking to you right now is one of your hosts, Nathan Rouse, and typically with me is fellow co-host Reed Lackey. And, you know, he was here a minute ago, but he said that he needed to go look more closely at his rental agreement, which I mean, I know rentals in Southern California can be a thing as they can be in many places, but I, I don't really know what that's about. Hopefully everything's okay. And in, 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 in shape as it were, we'll see what comes of that, but you know, he'll be back. I, I think, um, while he tends to that, allow me to welcome you back to our brand new series, uh, that informally began surprise a couple of weeks ago with infinity war and continued last week with a ghost story. Um, we hope you're enjoying this series. It's a series meant to resonate directly with our current local and global moment. As we all wrestle through our shared sorrow, as we experience an initiation, a word that's coming up a lot here into our lives, as we ponder our deaths, at least in a certain fashion, I am getting ahead of myself, though, because here at The Fear of God, we we just explore. We don't explain, and I was risking over-explaining there. Um, I am, however, going to explain that you can find us just about anywhere, at least anywhere podcasts are sold. If you'd be so kind, we would also welcome a five-star rating or a review on iTunes. And, lest I forget, let me remind you that your home for all things foggy is thefearofgodpodcast.com 
wherein you will find archives and merch, including cell phone cases, t-shirts, campaign buttons, pillows, face masks, please wear them, magnets, and read! Hey, buddy! Hey, man, welcome back to the... Hey, you, you okay? Did everything go okay with that? <laughs> what is that face you're making? Everything okay with the rental agreement? You good? Yeah. Yeah? There's some weird... There's been some weird things going on. Really? Yeah. Like, they've been heard some weird banging. Ooh. My clothes are doing weird things. I know you don't like piles of clothes. I don't. Like, I don't. You know, well, no, I, I hope, don't. well, hopefully, at least for the sake of our conversation, it's all going to tone down a little bit. You know, I hope I mean, so. I hope, don't t- do me a favor. Don't tell what? anybody I don't like piles of clothes. Okay. <laughs> so whatever you do, don't. You. D- don't, nice. <laughs> don't, hey. don't tell anybody that. Riri. So, what? So, excitement. Is probably the wrong word, but <laughs> we we're kind of in the thick of a new series. And yes. Yes. what are you kind of feeling about this? Um, so it's I, I feel like it's it's weird. I, I don't want to get super heavy, super fast, but like even That's going us, through <laughs> even going through like the episodes of Leftovers that we talked about last week and and the ones we're going to get into today, particularly one of the ones we're going to get into today. Um, it is, uh, it's just been remarkable to me the ways in which some of the conversations that we have have helped. I sincerely, I don't know what they're doing for our listeners. They're clearly listening. Uh, thank you for the increased numbers, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, the, the thing that it has really helped me with is just to come into these conversations and kind of properly contextualize the global trauma that we're dealing with. The I had just put as of this recording. It's been a while now as of the time it airs, but as of this recording, I just had a very fruitful conversation, like with my wife, about how, like, listen, it's it's okay that you're not okay. Like, it's okay mm-hmm. that yeah. that we're just kind of going through these these things at our own pace and in our own way. I and, can't remember. Did has she watched Leftovers? No, she she hasn't. And what's funny is that the first season. Which, you know, as we've already kind of mentioned, the first season is really dour in tone. And because mm-hmm. of that, when I was watching it, I actively thought she would not enjoy it. Now, of sure. course, where the show goes yeah. may be a different story. But, but you know, this first season takes a little bit to get to get through. And so, uh, so no, she hasn't watched it yet. Although we'll, you know, we'll, we'll see. Maybe as this galvanizes me a lot, I might, might pivot her in. Um, but no, I mean, I am excited to have this conversation. I really feel like it's an important one, if not for the listeners and for the people, it's important to me. So that's that's why I feel like it's just really uh, been one that I'm grateful for. So uh, the the one thing that I want to mention before we kind of move on into to that piece of it is um, listeners right now, because... There are three seasons of Leftovers, and in between each of these seasons, we're going to take a brief little break. Go to fearofgodpodcast.com right now. Tag back in on hashtag 2020-2020, because the surveys for 2009 and 2010 are up, and we need your votes. So it's hard to believe. So, But 2009 and 2010, when we finish season one of Leftovers, which will not be long, uh, we will be visiting your favorite horror films of 2009 and 2010. But you got to go vote on them. you got to tell us what they are. So go to fearofgodpodcast.com, follow the banner at the top, go to the surveys, and cast your vote for your favorite horror films of 2009 and 2010. Um, so, But the, there's really only one more thing to say. What's that? What you watching? <laughs> what you reading? 
reach for the scar, brother. What you listening to? Wow. It feels <laughs> like it's been way too long. I feel like it has been. It's it been has. Far, far longer than than you've been. It you've been be. like sitting on that, just like <laughs> just for a little while, and then it just bursts forth. And yeah, you go for it. Yeah, you know? that's exactly right. What What was that image you just conjured of like it's the kid <laughs> on the know. box cover cover art of a movie reaching for the? I don't Probably know Free Willy for all I know. <laughs> that I might it be is. it. That might be it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Have a big whale jump over maybe, me. Maybe, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, right. What you're watching, reading, listening to, Riri. So, you know, we, we just watched. I mean, you asked me, do you care if I no, lead here? Please, I don't know if, uh, yeah. if, if I think you may have even watched this yourself. Mm-hmm. So, it is, it is quarantine time, uh, wherein, you know, time is just a face on the water. It, it is not a thing anymore. And so, you know, one day, bumps into the next or does it maybe um and something that i was sort of aware of when it was initially airing uh, is very recent um but that kind of in a moment i was like i think the kids would probably dig this so my big kids and mother-in-law and even my wife sat in on some of this we just watched lego masters the fox reality show tv hosted by one Mr. Lego Batman himself, Will Arnett. What a fun show. That's a fantastic show. And I tell you what, so yeah, the, let's just spend a few minutes talking That's about right. Lego you, Masters. Okay, because, so did yeah, y'all finish it? We did. So okay, have you yeah. finished it? Yeah, you know, yeah all the yeah, way? We're done. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Spoiler. My, <laughs> yeah, no, my my couple won. My my pair won. The oh, pair yeah. that I was rooting for from episode one. Now I got to give a shout out to my son. My son watched this with me. My My wife checked out the first episode or two, but it very rapidly became like, destination viewing for me and my son um and then uh one evening when we built uh shoot if i'd had the fourth thought i would have brought it in to show it to everybody maybe on another another we are yeah see i don't think about these things anymore um we uh did uh, shortly after we all got quarantined we did a project and we made the big lego yoda that they uh, have put out it's it's massive it's impressive um we took a few hours and built that big lego, lego yoda with repeats of lego masters playing in the background so it was really it was really kind of fun that became destination viewing for me and my son i have to give a shout out to him that when we went into the finale there are three pairs in the finale and his first pair he was like well i'm rooting for them and then they got eliminated so he's like well okay well then i'll i'll pull for the other ones and then they came in second. I felt so bad. It was like one of the worst parts because then he was like really you said upset. He was, you said he identified three and one of them got eliminated? Well, in the finale. So the finale itself oh, has uh, three people competing yes. against yeah, each yeah, other. Yeah. He was going for one couple. They came in third. He Then he pivoted over to going to the next pair and they came in second and so i felt so bad because my the people i was rooting for won and, and i'm like, sure you rubbed it in his face well no it was like the worst sitting there. i was like yeah sorry uh, okay yeah sorry and i was like sitting here comforting him i'm sorry my folks won i'm sorry like like wow. no i mean like yeah it was it was weird so i just got a poor cold one out for that but no that such a fun energetic creative spirited show some of those builds it was amazing were insane i mean just one of my favorite. Well, the very first episode. So, you know, I didn't grow up with Lego, and so it's only been kind of through. I mean, I don't know the last ten years or so that mm, it's really mm. hit my radar in a profound way. Of course, I know what it is, but never really engaged it with any seriousness. Yeah. Um. Yeah. That first episode, 
with the Ferris wheel one. I was like, holy cow. Right. People's oh capacity and skill level at that was really astonishing. Well, and my favorite one. Well, my favorite moment in the show. It's not my favorite build. My favorite builds were the ones where they did the half thing where they had half oh, yeah, an yeah. object yep. and they had to uh-huh. build out like the clock that that one couple did was just yeah. that was fantastic. Um, but my favorite moment is when and this was my couple. My favorite moment is when they're building up the bridge and it holds a thousand pounds. Oh, that was amazing. I was like, this, that's, that's unbelievable. I was like, this is crazy. Staggering. So yeah, it's a super fun show, really accessible, uh, very fun, fun for the whole family. It's, uh, it'll really inspire your creative spirit, very sort of positive leaning. I love that a couple of times where you're really kind of devastated for people going home. Uh, it's the only reality show that I can recall. Where the judges, as they're sending people home, are getting teary eyed. That was about, yeah. That was isn't really that impressive? Yeah. And I was just like, this is this clearly was an atmosphere that inspired creativity and inspired each other to, you know, kind of just have a good time. And uh, yeah, I loved it. It's highly recommendable show, and I love it. I'm, I'm glad you, I'm glad you watched it. We loved it. Yeah, that was uh, <laughs> it's been so long. Do it, do it. Our family, that was. What were we watching? <laughs> we weren't reading. We weren't listening to. I mean, wow. I've never had to see you do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's not my yeah. favorite thing. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, so, you know, Lego Masters, incredibly fun show. Speaking of fun shows, um, <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's go back to Mapleton and join up with the Garvey clan and extended cast uh, for the Damon Lindelof spearheaded Tom Parada novel, The Leftovers uh, of HBO. Mm. Specifically, we are looking at, for this TV guidepost, um, we are covering The Leftovers season one right now. This is episodes three and four. Yes. Um, number, number three, two boats and a helicopter, and number four, BJ and the AC. Uh, we, we, we probably will spend the bulk of our time at number three here. Number three or episode three rather is the Matt Jameson episode. It, it is what yes. I call the lock episode. Um, mm-hmm. it's the third of the series. It features the man of faith of the show. Um, and in a really profound and devastating sort of sequence of events. Man. Um, you know, this episode is the kind of, one that you you got to think Damon just loves, but two sure loves to execute on and really elevates like one and two are good and, and elements yeah. of them are fantastic. Sure. This yeah. one. And I, I love that we just covered 28 days later, you know, six weeks ago and, and sure. referred yeah. to Matt Jameson over and over. And here we are formally yep. getting to know him. And he's, he's a terrible guy. <laughs> <laughs> I love the man, but goodness gracious. So, yeah. so yeah, episode three, two boats and a helicopter is the Matt centric, uh, his attempt to keep his church, uh, effectively is, yeah. is, is yeah. the arc of the episode. You know, you, you, I think we both had only seen the series and it's in, uh, total once, right? So this Correct. is, yes, this is my a, second a time reviewing for you. What, what's, what stood out for you in this episode that, that either you may have not recalled or were excited to revisit. So what's funny is I did not remember this episode going where it did until the moment 
that he goes in and talks to the uh, bank, the the teller mm-hmm. at the bank, mm-hmm. and I realized like, oh, this is that episode because man, the last like fifteen minutes of this episode is is absolutely galvanizing. Um, but there wasn't a lot. I don't have a strong memory of season one. Like most of the things we've been experiencing. I've, I'm remembering them like kind of in real time as they sure. happen, not so much that I went into it with this vast knowledge. I remember much more from season two when we get there than I do of season one or three. So it's going to, it's going to be interesting when we, when we go back through it. Um, Matt Jameson is my favorite character in this show. He's um, so good. the entire show. I feel like he's the one. With the the strongest amount of complexity to his motivations, strongest amount of pathos, strongest amount of frustration, um, I feel like he's just the most interesting person. Not that the other characters are uninteresting, but he's the one that is kind of the the most compelling, both his story, his actions, what he is and what he's all about. And Eccleston? He's so good. Oh, my gosh. He's... He's outstanding. Yeah, well, let's, go ahead. Let's contextualize it this way. So we don't want to spend forever on each episode. And we've got a movie to get to and a guest, by the way, which I'll let yes, you um, sort of uh, prime us for that. But I feel like there's two scenes in this episode that are the, the uh, you know, if you were to distill Matt Jameson into two things, it's terrible and beautiful. Uh, and, and I do want to throw out one line that I just loved and is very exemplary of a lot of stuff about this show. It's when he, he gets on the elevator with the clown Mm. and as the door is closing, he just says, guess you and me are going to the same place. Oh and it's just this great, like, Wonderful. we've already seen the clown at Heroes Day and the pilot, yes, you know, so yes. we know where they're going. But it was just this perfect bit of, of you know, it's kind of scripting and, and sort of choreography. But the, the scenes I want to focus on, and you can add as much or as little as you want here, but the I'll start with the terrible and then we'll go. To okay, the sure, sure. The terrible, but an amazing scene is his encounter with Nora when we learn their relationship and he's asking for money she's kind of put off um you know you you learn that he has been uh posthumously exposing people who got taken in the sudden departure as as wretched folks and and is making this a, a sort of cottage hobby for himself um and it's just really sad and this is where he divulges to Nora his sister that her husband of whom the husband and her two kids were all taken in the departure. Um, <laughs> listeners won't know this, but my brain is working really hard for the chronology we're oh, operating sure. under yeah, here. Yeah, um, right, right, right. So he, he divulges to her that her husband, um, Doug was, yes, uh, yes. cheating on her. And that's the punch he leaves with her. And what's so kind of catastrophic about that moment is, and maybe I'm, I'm thinking about this in real time. I can't tell if he's he he's not. I don't even know that he's doing it to harm her. He's actually no. positioning it as I'm not going to expose you to the same sort of whatever that I'm right, doing to these right. other people. I don't know. It's just really like on in a vacuum. If you just watch that scene and try to assess, OK, what is this character like? You're like, well, that's a terrible person. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think the the biggest thing is that he truly feels in the context of his efforts that that's a righteous undertaking. Oh, sure. Yeah, and yeah. I think that's crucial for the character being believable is this thing he's doing about sort of 
confronting things like Heroes Day and confronting things like this is the rapture, you know, that's or it's not right. The, That's what he's kind of saying. It's yeah, he's saying. Right. Yeah, he's saying that it's not the rapture because he's saying, you know, these are not good people. These are not people to be lauded. These are not people that we should ch- uh, just herald as the best among us. And there is a degree of nobility, or at least understandability, in what he's trying to do to say, like, hey, let's not paint over the the wrongdoings of these individuals at the same time the way he's going about it i love the moment that happens later in the episode where he's like i think i can see why you're getting punched in the face yeah 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 the casino (laughs) worker yes yes um and uh and so when he tells nora to your point i don't think there is malice to it i think this is just you know hey i I haven't told you this but here's the deal and and it's devastating he says to her it's the one story i'll never publish and i'm just like oh my god Gosh, what a yeah, it's it is this mix of terrible, but Eccleston has this ability in his facial expressions to land on a look that just captures so much tension in what he's doing. Like I wrote down a few things. So specifically, he conveys so many conflicting emotions the moment he finds out Emily got better, but then finds out that it was before they prayed for her. Yeah. The moment that he's asked to baptize you know well, that's a, uh, yeah that's what i was gonna say into these two scenes it's like the nora him scene and then the baptism scene like that oh. that i remember a decent amount of the arc of this season i had forgotten that moment and so uh, yeah, you know yeah. you you had learned previous to that scene that the work of matt jameson is to try to keep or at least of this couple episodes is to keep the church uh open and in his sort of ownership and so no one's attending, no one's coming, you know, the, the sudden departure has, has turned us all into a completely different version of religious than we were pri- previous to it. And, um, you, then you have this kind of 20 something, maybe 30 yeah. year old father, new father who walks in and the line is how long does it take to do a baptism? Mm. And to your point, Chris Eccleston's face is just this amazing. I wrote down this amazing blend of joy and knowing like he just, yeah, yeah so much gets gets sort of translated in that moment. Absolutely. The other big one that I wrote down was just one of my favorite reactions. It's it, from a scripting moment, from a construction of the scene, when he wins the money, when he wins the big jackpot because they've thrown that that uh, flag on it that like she's possibly jinxed him. So the way that his face is sort of real tense and uncertain, mm-hmm. but then breaks out in that big smile. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. It's yeah, wonderful. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. It's so wonderful. Well, it's um, interesting. I, I want to throw this thematic idea at you and we, we don't, I, I don't really intend it to linger long here because that's not sure. what this is for. But as I was watching it this time and pondering, Matt to me is a fascinating counterpoint to the sudden departure. Um, mm. Like this episode specifically like the sudden departure occurring to people is, is sort of propping up this. What, what if you had no idea that what you loved would be taken away in mm, say, right, right. And then you've got Matt whose story centers on this church. And it's that conceit is what if you know full well that this is mm. going to be taken? You know what I mean? It's this right. really kind right. of interesting that this episode just sort of lives in like, yeah. What oh, if you absolutely. know this is going to be taken from you? How do you approach that? Right. Um, Versus the Noras of of the Leftovers universe who don't know at all. Well, and it can't be ignored. Uh, I I had mentioned to you earlier. So 
the the episode is called Two Boats in a Helicopter. And and uh, I know the answer to this, but for listeners' sake, like, do, do you know where that <laughs> title comes from? Like, you and your leading questions, lackey. My leading that's questions. Your, that's your, you got that that detective's hat on. No, yeah, no, I'm sure. right. <laughs> um, I, I know the the rough reference. Yes, I mean, yeah, it's, it's been a while. So, so it's a. I heard it as a joke. Uh, it's got a little punchline. It's a very brief story to tell. There's a story about a, a town that is being flooded, and there's a preacher who climbs to the roof of. Uh, I've heard it sometimes be his house, sometimes be the church, and uh, he's climbing up there to not drown. A man in a rowboat comes by and says, "Here, get in, preacher, and I'll rescue you." And he says, "Well, no, the Lord's going to save me." Then a man in a motorboat comes by. And says, here, preacher, get in quick. And he says, no, 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 the Lord's going to save me. And then a helicopter comes down, lowers a ladder and says, please, quick, click, climb up, you know. And he says, uh, no, 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 the Lord is going to save me. And so then the preacher drowns, dies. And when he gets to heaven, he confronts the Lord and says, like, Lord, why, why did you not save me? And the Lord says to him, sir, I sent you two boats and a helicopter. What do you expect me to do? <laughs> right, right. And, yeah. and, and so that in the context of this episode is, so much about like is the lord helping is is the lord opposed to him and it's it's fascinating because to win to go that whole casino moment is so incredible it's it's stunning to me the way the scene is constructed the way it narratively pans out and then you think he's about to get robbed by that jerk in the parking yeah, lot but yeah, then yeah. Then it pivots into like oh I actually he, forgotten that he murders him right oh yeah which yeah. is devastating in its way and then he gets back and to have it all be ripped out from under him because of a momentary act of good samaritanship is is uh, there's a lot of complexity yeah. to what this what this we probably is should have just done a whole fear of god episode on this episode of the left because yeah. there's, there's a lot we at work have. in this yes one. yeah too uh too much to really unpack in these brief sort of assessments but my final note on it uh is just when he gets to the bank He's like, it's only 10 minutes. And he tells him, like, oh, you know, I, I'm, it's only 10 minutes. And the guy's like, that was three days ago. Right. And you realize that he's been in that, that coma for, or that, you know, unconscious for three days. Uh, masterful scripting on the show's part. Uh, and then just a, a really powerfully affecting moment. So, uh, yeah, I love this episode. This is the episode that I really, first time through it, it's hard to get through this first half of the season, this is an episode that will propel you, if anything will, yeah, that yeah. will say like, okay, there's some stuff going on here. It's worth hanging tight to see where the show goes. So uh, let's let's move in however long we want to episode four, BJ and sure. the AC. Um, what did you think the AC stood for? I don't know. This is one, like, I'm talking all high and mighty about how, oh, I caught the two boats in a helicopter reference. I have no idea. Well, everybody what knows that one, Reed. <laughs> baby jesus is right, what i would right. imagine but i don't I was, know what i didn't actually look it up i was like AC, what are we talking about here yeah i know listener if you have watched the leftovers and are deeper into the lore than even we are let us know if you know what that means um yeah what AC this is. one features pretty heavily tommy and christine which uh i referenced a little bit last week is maybe one of the weakest aspects of this whole season um whole show you, you yeah well this christine at least is, is pretty much done with after this season but yeah, yeah um you read the book and you can unpack some of this as it as it happens but do you recall much about the book and how some of this like the things you liked or didn't about the book i read it 
in proximity to its publication, which would have been more than five or six years ago now at this point, um, I do remember that the, these that Tommy and Christine and the Holy Wayne plotline, like that's all there. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's yeah, in both the reading of the book and as I mentioned last week in in this iteration of the series, like this this is my we- my biggest ding against it. I almost am antagonistic against the fact that I have to endure this plot line as it's going through this season. I know it'll just be over the whole Holy Wayne stuff. All of it. Yeah, the whole Holy Wayne stuff. Um, I just, I, there I are do germs not, of some interesting stuff there, but, but on but the they, whole, yeah. 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 That's all. All they do is really make me sick. I mean, but those to, germs but don't do to me the good. show's credit, it learns from its mistakes very Agreed. quickly, you know, and also in the show's defense, it's in the novel. And the first right, season right, is right. very much, a a relatively faithful adaptation of the plot of the novel. So so that much I'm 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 gonna sort of yield to it. But honestly, I have three very brief things I would mention about this episode, and I wrote this episode down as largely skippable. Like I would say you could probably like view a couple of those scenes and then otherwise like this episode was a slog for me, especially coming off of yeah, the energy sure. of episode three. It's just like, oh my gosh, this show is like, like it just completely. Well, defense. and, and listeners will, <laughs> you know, the things to be ambivalent on in season one, only clear the runway for the, the soaring sort of aspects of season two and three to come. But sure. Yes. Um, <laughs> I think you'll get this joke because of the weird way we record our podcast, but the Furtick twins just tripped me out. Um, <laughs> the <laughs> they do, they I, do resemble. Oh they yes, do oh alarmingly so. Yes. Uh, oh, I do love wow. the gag. <laughs> you got to pretend that that's new. Um, <laughs> uh, I do love the gag when Kevin pulls them over and he says, "Which one of you is the smart one?" And they're both like, mm, "There's this real uncertainty." I do. I actually kind of. Despite my comment a moment ago, I, I think they're fun. They, they serve. They're they are fun. They are purely utility, but they, they do are. it. They, they do it yeah. decently. I got um, a genuine chuckle out of when they've dropped off baby Jesus, and then he's like, "No, no, no, stop, stop, stop!" And he's like, and he starts to drive, and he's like, "No, no, no!" Wait, oh, stop. yeah, yeah, yeah. When, yeah, when Garvey's watching funny. them from the like, they're trying so desperately to do this clean getaway, and they have this moment where they just have to struggle with it. Well, um, I, yeah, I don't totally disagree that a lot of this episode is is um, you know kind of middling as far as the overall stuff. I do love because I responded very strongly to the Lori Kevin dynamic in season one. I, I think it's a very powerful scene when she's with Meg delivering the divorce papers. It um, is. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. I, I don't no, mean to cut you off. No, I, I'm I'm just identifying it as yeah. at least on a certain that's level, one of my something rich about that episode. Yeah, that's one of my three. That's one of, like, if I were going to mention three specific moments that I think work really well in this episode, Lori delivering the divorce news through Meg because the guilty remnant won't allow her to speak. Um, that's, that's one. The second moment for me would be the view of the loved ones dummies mm-hmm. all over everything. That's a, that's a pretty haunting idea. Just, Wait, hey, man. you don't, Gets yeah. utilized in extremely haunting fashion. Oh, absolutely. Um, so that is is a pretty affecting moment. And then, boy, if you were on the fence about 
whether the guilty remnant are good people or not. And then they break into houses to steal pictures of loved ones that are never coming back. Uh, that is, that's a pretty well, atrocious but, thing. But see, it's funny. Do you recall where that leads? No, okay. my memory does well, not. That's what I'm, that's I, just a moment ago. I wondered if you remember this, the loved ones strewn across the dummies strewn across the highway. This is signature Lindelof. He is, he's building the box mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. placing these breadcrumbs because the dummies are a signal to the viewer. This thing exists in the universe of the show. Right. right. The, the photos that they're stealing are very relevant to what's. Oh, okay. I don't to remember the, to how, the remnant. So, okay. the, in, in these two episodes, the remnant buying the church and stealing the photos are key towards what you will ultimately learn. Oh, is their okay. kind okay. of plot right. of season one. Um, I'm glad I don't remember that because then yeah. that'll be, that'll probably be some revelatory experiences as but, I go through. But it, okay. it kind okay. of affirms where you're going, but, but uh, the awfulness isn't stealing photos. It's what they're doing with them. Um, uh, gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, so I, I do want to, as a final note here, I kind of love for an episode that centers on the baby Jesus doll. Mm-hmm. That feels a little weird, right? It feels like an odd thing to build the episode around, which means it must mean something. Um, Right, right, right. I don't know if you recall this from the Star Wars B-side. You were off fighting intergalactic, you know, bad guys. Took a lot out of me. Yeah, Yeah, I know, I know. Um, I'm I'm thankful you made it out relatively unscathed, (laughs) despite that bionic hand you now have. Um, Talk about the bionic (laughs) hand. yeah, Yeah. So, um, uh, Ian, in that episode references, we we were talking about Ray, the Ray from nowhere concept. And this, this phrase he threw out there was sometimes it's just a scavenger from Jakku because we were talking Mm -hmm. about rise of Skywalker. Well, where I'm going with this is I love, I love how this episode resolves with the baby Jesus. And what I wrote is, so Matt shows up, he saves the day. With right, he's, right. I had an extra and Kevin ends up throwing the initial initial baby Jesus out the window. And I wrote, sometimes a doll is baby Jesus. Sometimes it's just a doll. And sometimes it's both. And I just really love like, like, and, and I don't want to dwell here unless you just want to, but like the things we imbue with sort of meaning and impact and power, right, the things right, that yeah. once the meaning we've assigned to them no longer applies, we kind of, rescind from them i don't know yeah, it's just really understood. no I, I don't exactly know how to unpack that but but something about that was really kind of powerful to me no I, yeah i understand yeah i hear where you're going um do you though yeah i do i do <laughs> i do um yeah i i would uh i would linger there for maybe a moment but i actively want to resist digging too deep into the sure. heels of this because we're gonna yeah. in you know in three weeks time we're gonna dive into season one and all that it has uh, for us. So uh, stay tuned for that, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, that concludes another installment. We for- no, we, we, for- so- we forgot we're- to end it. Yeah, we- we're so we're so out of sorts. We with are. This. We're so out of sorts with this. So wait, wait, wait. Okay. We're going we're, we're gonna to rectify that uh, uh, right now, at least for the audio version sure. of this. Uh, so <clears throat> that concludes another installment of hashtag TV guideposts where we consume our leftovers once again and we are saying goodbye to episodes three and four where one of them was super fantastic, awesome, and amazing and the other one was not that, but still had a lot to offer for maybe some people in some contexts somewhere because we imbue with meaning 
Sometimes it's a doll. Sometimes it's an <laughs> sometimes episode. Jesus. Sometimes it's Jesus. So, sometimes it's TV guideposts. That's that's what we're doing. So uh, we'll see you next time. <laughs> Happy new video era, everyone. <laughs> no, no kidding. Uh, so all right, we, yeah, yeah, we're gonna have to uh, figure out how to how to make that work. No, you're good. If we even why do. don't you why don't you lead us tee us off? We're, we, we've got okay. two whole okay. sort of things here. Why don't you tee us off for what listeners can expect in the next? Absolutely, minute? absolutely. So so what we're gonna do? We we recorded this a bit out of time, uh, but uh, we are going to after this brief momentary break, uh, we are going to be diving into a film from 1980 called uh, The Changeling, directed by Peter Medic and starring George C. Scott. For that specific part of the conversation, we invited our friend of the show, uh, Bill Oberst Jr., back to converse specifically about uh, this film, and uh, it was his first time seeing it, and we think you're really going to enjoy where the conversation goes from here, so uh, we'll be back in just a second, and uh, you'll have a conversation about The Changeling, so we'll see you in a minute. All right. Bill, I cannot tell you how excited I am to have you back on the show. This is a, a rare treat, a rare opportunity. Uh, now I think you're officially, uh, uh, you have to be considered part of the Fear of God family because not only have you recorded The Raven for us, you and I had a wonderful chat not that long ago, uh, probably about six, seven months ago now, and now you're on for like a formal, actual <laughs> conversation. So thank you so much for taking the time to be with us again today. We really appreciate it. Well, you're welcome. And actually, you inspired me to do a podcast that I'm doing now, recording The Raven for you guys, which I had almost almost completely forgotten about. And (laughs) then just before this pandemic hit, somebody on Facebook or something said, didn't you record The Raven once? So I said, yeah, I did. And then I linked to the fear of God. And then when the pandemic came and I was going crazy like everybody else being indoors, I got the idea to do a podcast featuring Gothic material, which probably wouldn't happen had you not asked me to do The Raven. So thank you. Oh my gosh. And by the way, if you have oh, not, a wheel. <laughs> it so is. And by the way, if you have not, listeners, if you have not checked out Bill's podcast, it is really, really great. Bill, pitch us the name, pitch us the concept. Oh, it's called Gothic Good Night. And it's an homage to the radio shows of the 40s in which you'd have a host set in some creepy location. <laughs> Mine is, I, I, it's a bedtime tale. So no episode is more than 30 minutes and most are about 20. And I literally read you to sleep. <laughs> short gothic fiction it's really great if you haven't that checked it awesome. out yeah it's it's actually really spectacular so yes bill's too humble of a guy to uh to say how amazing it is but i love it and it is it is act actually a great throwback to the um to the classic radio dramas that's part of what i love so much about well, it what's funny about that is like you have 30 minute episodes intending to put people to sleep we have oh, two hours it doesn't likely you do not fall put asleep, people to sleep. it doesn't work <laughs> right right <laughs> right i'm saying you're trying ours is two hour episodes that people are like oh my god I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's like nathan trying to watch a movie these days oh my gosh um well speaking of that so nathan this is your and bill's first time together yeah. I'm, gonna, I'm gonna take yeah. a, i'm gonna take a step back why don't you well, why don't you formally welcome him in and, 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 and before uh, you and get acquainted joined our little call here Reed. we were we were exchanging pleasantries and and uh learning of some similar geographies here and, and backstories and i i mentioned to bill that it's nice to have the pleasantries out of the way the formalities like 
the mm-hmm. poetry reading and the <laughs> you know formal get to know Bill episode. Now it's just you're just part of the crew. And um, absolutely. So, Bill, something we do um, with pretty much any guest uh, is ask. Uh, the two questions. We need to formalize this. Reed. We need a little jingle. So you'd be thinking about that while I ask this question. Of Bill, Reed. <laughs> okay. All right. I'll see what jingle. I can so come up with. The two questions we like to ask guests. Uh, I'll ask one, let you answer, then ask the other. So I'm phrasing your version a little different than I would the casual person because you're that special to us. But if someone were to say to you, why do you like horror films? What is, what is a film or a pair of films, you know, minding our time that you would point them to um if someone says okay okay okay, this is crazy you're ridiculous why do you even like this stuff what's what's one or two you would point someone to uh amadeus and the exorcist that's oh man my man mentioned the exorcist i'm right there okay (laughs) this is great episode over (laughs) (laughs) that's fantastic all right uh that's awesome Uh, until uh your and reed's conversation i had never contextualized amadeus as a horror film but based on how you talk about it uh in Mm -hmm. in that conversation i was like okay i can get behind that sort of like some of the stuff we do sometimes like is that horror is it no because and i'll just add a one sentence yeah qualifier to that the lie of the devil is that you are a mediocrity and you can never measure up so Mm. you might as well just slide further down and be evil Mm. those two those two movies taken together deal with um evil and uh the lie of mediocrity Mm. and um and hierarchy and i think the devil really loves to make us think about hierarchy okay i'm done no, wow, that's great. That's fantastic. Do we just need to mute ourselves and let Bill just go? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I would love it. I would love that podcast. Right. So, so well, I mean, Gothic Goodnight. You know, that's it is. It's, it's there. Um, so, the second question for you, Bill, is, um, and this can be as existential or as literal as you want it to be. But what scares you? Not mattering. Mm. Oh, that's a good. That's answer. definitely existential. Really? Yeah, that's a great answer. Reed, when he got asked this question a couple years ago, he said a pile of clothes. <laughs> I did not. It was not that. No, I said. So no, the story. Wa- the story was. I have this yeah, momentary give us the context, thing. Reed. Give us the context. No, here's here's the thing. That matters. So. I have, um, as tends to be the habit, my son obviously goes to bed before the rest of us do, and my wife, most nights, goes to bed before I do. So I'm usually up for about an hour or so more than she is, and as I'm turning out the lights in the living room and walking down, I most often have this brief seconds of flash... Where I, the, all of the lights are off and I'm going to walk down the unlit hallway and I'm like, you know what? There have been occasions where there's like a pile of clothes sitting somewhere or where there's something off in the, in the distance. And I'm like, is that a, oh my gosh, I hope that doesn't move. Is that, is that what I think it is? And so I have these moments. So whenever somebody was like, what scares you? I was like, well, sometimes I get a little freaked out by something like that. And then that somehow translated to my dear friend of two decades is like, so you're scared of a pile of clothes. That's really, you know, at the show we say we explore, but not explain. You just explained the joke away. And so, you know, it's not quite as funny. (laughs) It's not quite as funny when you do that. Uh, Last question. This is not asked of all of our guests. Um, and I'm going to personalize it. Uh, Bill, if I wanted to, um, dive into your personal oeuvre of your work, uh, what are a couple of films you would point me to as like, Hey, I really like that one. 
Um, I really like my work in that one. What what's what are a couple? And listeners, take note. Um, the retrieval. Okay, mm, that's a good film. Um, dis, criminal minds. Uh, yeah, right offhand, right offhand. Retrieval hand. and criminal minds. Good to know. Nice. You heard it here, nice. listeners. All right. Well, Bill, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for playing our little question game. Reed, <laughs> do you want to? Do you want to? Lead us into yeah, the film. so so let us let us delay no further. We're going to dive into Peter Medic's. I don't know if it's Medic or Medoc. I, I I'm going to say Medic because I believe that's the way it's that's the way it's supposed to be pronounced. <laughs> Probably wrong. I'm sure. Fine. You know what, Nathan? Let's <laughs> listen. So um uh so we're going to dive into Peter Medic's film from 1980, the year that I was born. Uh, and it is the George C. Scott starring the Changeling. So. If I understand this correctly, Nathan and Bill, this was each your first time seeing it. Is that correct? Correct. It is. Yes. Yeah. So I'm gonna I'm gonna defer. I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of start with Bill. Uh, one thing that we like to sort of ramp up in. We're gonna get into likes, dislikes, and trivia and all that good stuff. But first of all, I want to know just your general impression of the films. First time seeing it, I I know from offhand conversations that you're a big George C. Scott fan. So what did you think of of this particular film and its sensibilities? What was your experience of it? It would be nothing without Scott. Mm. Mm. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's got such a charismatic gravity to him that it is, uh, it, it, it's remarkable. I feel like whatever he does, he is able to sell it and infuse it with a sense of believability that is really remarkable. He's one of my favorite actors. Uh, you know, any, even in you films have, I don't you like. You may have seen this read, but um, I, I was just doing some reading on the film and of Scott. Uh, the director had it went through a, a couple of handoffs in terms of director before it landed on medic and Scott's reputation preceded him and uh, medic was concerned, you know, like, is he going to be difficult and that sort of stuff. Oh. And the only time he presented as quote unquote difficult was when on set, someone knocked over the chessboard that he had been playing against himself for like weeks like on set, there was a chessboard that he'd just been, you know, kind yeah. of between cuts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that was the only time he oh, really wow. showed that. That's interesting. I hadn't, even, I hadn't heard that anecdote before. That's pretty yep. cool. Um, Nathan, what about for you? What did, like, what did you think of the film? Um, in in podcast world, in in real world, last week we talked about a ghost story. Yes, um, mm-hmm. and watching those two in very close proximity to each other did not help the changeling a whole lot. I don't think it would. Um, yeah. And which is, which is not actually really intended as slight to this particular film, just kind of an unfortunate comparison, but he's fantastic. Of course, it had a lot of omen vibes, just kind of the date, you know, the sort of datedness of it and the, the, the energy sort of around it. the score too. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm interested to see what our conversation yields by no means. Was it a, I don't like it at all. It was just kind sure. of like, okay, this is, it is interesting. I did not know anything about it. So I didn't know it was a haunted house movie. Oh, um, okay. So, sure. so from that standpoint, Bill, I will often choose if I'm unfamiliar with the work to not watch a trailer, to not read anything. All I know. Oh, me too. I, yeah, I, yeah. I, I get infuriated when I'm going to watch a movie and somebody else is going to watch it and they're like, oh, yeah, Wikipedia did. And it was filmed in Portugal. I'm like, shut up. Yeah. <laughs> 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 what are the tax incentives in Portugal? Um, you know, just so so I the, just come to a piece of art yes. and let the art do what it does. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm, I'm a big fan of that methodology as well. And so 
sometimes that can hurt me actually, because I'm unprepared. And so kind of have to wrap my brain around something I'm unexpected. But for this one in particular, it was neither good nor bad. It was just kind of like, okay, I don't know what I'm getting into. Regardless, Reed, you asked, what did I generally think of it? I generally thought this is decent. Uh, you know, it's one I respect for his work and I, I will give it some credit. Um, to your, uh, I'm scared of a pile of clothes experience. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to keep rephrasing that in as de- demeaning a way as possible. I, um, I appreciate as condescending that. Condescending a way as possible. Yeah. No, I will say to its credit, as little as I felt scared in the watching of it, once I was done at about 1130, I was like, now the lights are all off and I have to go upstairs. <laughs> I have to go upstairs, like in the dark and like, you know. I had I had a bit more haste to my and, okay all right return to the bed. That's fair. <laughs> That's fair. So um, I think there is the the tracking of public opinion on this film is really interesting because when I was younger, I want to say maybe ten to twelve years old, there was a distinct sort of like push as for the changeling as this big underrated gem that everybody needs to see. And uh, I remember when I first saw it, which I would have been probably about 11, 12 years old. When I first saw it, I remember thinking, wow, this is um, a really exceptional film. I loved it. Um, I still regard it as one of my favorite sort of ghost stories, haunted house stories, as it were. Um, But I have noticed that time, uh, at least from the articles that I'm reading and stuff like that has tended to position it a bit dinged down. I don't know how well it's aged. Some of that may just be the mechanics and the sensibilities are a little different. Some of that may just be the, um, just, just there've been a lot of really effective haunted stories and, and maybe that's all there is to that. And that's all, you know, that's the reason that, Popular opinion is sort of waning a bit on it. Um, it remains, as I said, one of my favorite movies, and I've, I've rewatched it probably four or five times uh, now, and uh, and I am very fond of it, though I have to admit, aside from a couple of very deliberate scares, which we'll get to, my favorite aspect of it is George C. Scott, his performance, um, what he brings to the entire sort of menagerie is, is my favorite thing about it. Um, before we get into too many specifics of the film, I got a couple of uh, trivial bits to cite. Nathan, I don't know if you've done uh, some reading or homework on this one, but I have like just four or five small little things to mention here. Fire away. Um, so it was loosely based on a real story, which I did uh, see that. Yeah, yeah, which uh, is interesting to me. Presumably, uh, there was a man who rented an estate house, uh, and then while there, witnessed several inexplicable phenomena. One thing leads to another. He calls in a a medium to have a seance. They uncovered a potential conspiratorial murder of a child in another home. Um, That real house, the the Henry Treat Rogers Mansion in Colorado, uh, has since been demolished. So uh, who knows what... That the the real story happened at. I did read this. Yes, that the real story happened. Because, fascinatingly, the... (laughs) You're going to love this. Oh, no. So, well, one, the the trivial bit I was going to throw out is that... In the film, that's just a facade built onto a house, right? Ah, like they, mm, they mm. found, I mean, so, so the, the visual of the front of the home that you're seeing in the film is just a facade that was constructed. Right. Um, and, and most of the interiors were, uh, connected sets. Um, though it's hilarious. If like me, you know nothing about this movie and thus don't know you're getting a haunted house story. 
So Bill won't know this, but Bill, I work, I'm in sales in my sort of normal life as it were. And so I'm at homes a lot. I'm at other people's houses a lot. And so I see a lot of houses. Um, so when, when George C. Scott's character to his friends, once he's relocated, he's like, I'm just, I think I'll just rent something. Remember they offer <laughs> to let him stay. And he's like, yeah. no, I'm just going to rent something. The next shot is of this palatial mansion. And what I wrote <laughs> down is like, that's the house he's going to rent. Holy cow. Yeah. It's like, that's not realistic whatsoever. <laughs> I have to recalibrate every time I watch this movie. It's one of the things for me is that like, I forget that in the context of this film, he is like a John Williams or like a Michael Giacchino sure. or like, like a, you know, like a yeah. major composer. So he's used to living in some degree of luxury by himself in mass. Right. It's, right, it's right. one of my things is like, who would rent this? Like, <laughs> Like you said, palatial mansion that is just exp- and to live by themselves, following right. living with a wife and daughter. Like I don't, sure, that, yeah, yeah, that yeah. is one thing. Well, that like, I'm just once, like I don't know. Once it clicked for me, oh, this is a haunted house movie. It at least it at least lent a little bit of like, okay, I guess that's fine. You know, <laughs> right. <laughs> when I don't know that's what I'm watching, it's like, holy cow, that's oh a my house gosh. for rent. Oh my gosh. Um. So one other thing about the sort of the uh, basis for it is presumably the writers of the film meticulously researched the field of parapsychology um, to try to display specifically the seance scene in as accurate a way possible to what the research of the time or the uh, sensibility of the time would have indicated that something like that would have gone down. We'll get back to that seance scene uh, pretty soon, but it, but it, it would appear from my very rudimentary research that they tried to do their homework on the film, uh, tried both in the tr- supposedly true story in which it's based and also the um, sort of events that take place of the paranormal and, and uh, the parapsychological aspect of things. Um, it is uh, pretty lauded by a couple of notable filmmakers. Alejandro Amenabar, who directed The Others, and Martin Scorsese have both cited it as one of the scariest films they've ever seen. Uh, Amenabar specifically cited it as an influence for The Others. The last thing that I have mentioned here that I just I find interesting is that so George C. Scott is in this with Trish Van Devere, and they were married at the time. They had appeared in a handful of other films together in the 70s, and by this time, by the time they got to The Changeling, most of the studios kind of suspected that basically Van Devere and George C. Scott were primarily a, a package deal. I, but I, what's interesting about that is I think this was the last film that they made together. They had made either four or five before this, and then this uh, appears to be their final collaboration. But that was, my, that was the last of my little trivial, right. trivial insights. Um, so, Bill, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kick it over to you uh, for just some general notes, uh, maybe two or three if you've got them, of what you liked and or disliked about the film. This is our little likes-dislikes segment. Likes and dislikes? In any order, in whatever comes to mind. Um... I liked the fact that uh, they used, I think, all of the available language of cinema at that time mm-hmm. to create an impression of oppression. I really did feel mm-hmm. oppressed and fearful uh, mm-hmm. in the house. And I thought they used all, all the available tools, including some really nice traveling shots. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, to me... The plot was secondary, but I've always thought that the plot is, it's fine in a movie for a plot to be secondary because a movie is not meant to me 
to be a story. It's meant to be an experience. A story is wrapped within the experience. Yeah. Yeah. It's just meant, it's, 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 it's supposed to be a mood feeling thing to me. I think that's what cinema can be rather than just a documentary. This happened, this happened, this happened. Right. So I love the atmosphere. Um, and this, and I love the, the use of the full visual language of cinema. Um, I didn't like the ending. Mm. When you okay. say I didn't like the ending, what sort of didn't like how the story resolved or like what, what didn't you like about the ending? Well, there wasn't one. <laughs> it just sort of stopped. I don't mean that as a knock. No, I mean, you're, 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 you're in good company. You're fine. <laughs> yeah. they, came, they came to the logical resolution of the story, which <clears throat> is embodied in George C. Scott's, you little son of a bitch, what do you want? Right. What do right. you want? Yes. I've done everything I can do. Mm-hmm. And I think that was the the, the filmmakers mm-hmm. at that moment, too, was we've done everything we can do. Now, what do we do? And then if, if I could just very briefly use a personal example. Sure. Sure. Yeah. The, the, the Criminal Minds, the first episode that I did on my character, he was a the child of incest and he was physically deformed and he was pitiful. He spoke childlike. They wanted me to play him childlike. <clears throat> and it was great. And he was really a heartbreaking killer. But then in the last scene, as a way to end the episode, he inexplicably travels to a couple who's on their honeymoon in a cabin, um, grabs the man by the neck with a knife and says, you have 10 seconds to tell me where your car keys are. And then he starts counting down completely out of character for anything that he had done. He was no longer heartbreaking, no longer kind. And it's the most bizarre end to the episode. And so I felt the same way watching this movie. You have to end it somehow. Yeah, yeah. I do feel like, so So uh, one of my clar- dislikes... Hey, Reed, I'm sorry to cut you off. Will you no. clarify for me? Because uh, I it was a little bit fever dream by the end. The Carmichael, the old man, we are, visu- we are shown him effectively in two places at one time, right? That is Am correct. Am I making that up? Yes. Okay, yep. okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> so- I was like... Uh, I think this is what's going on. <laughs> so, so one of the biggest, I do think one of the biggest problems to the film is its ending. To me, the ending it has is, um, well, I'll say it this way. I'll kind of jump here because I think this is an important uh, distinction. To me, I feel like the film really ends or should really end after John Russell, George C. Scott's character, has exposed the truth, dropped off his stuff, and left the office. Agreed, me, agreed, agreed. That me, was the last scene. Yeah, that's the that should be the ending of the film. To Carmichael, confronts Carmichael. To, yeah, you know what? Read, Carmichael. Yeah. Today, it, today it might be, because the thing was two hours long. Sure, and yeah. if it were yeah. an independent film today, that probably is what they did. Yeah, just lobbed off that last, that last piece. I think there was, if I can just make some suppositions, there might have been some impulses to say, well, you can't have so much time in this house and not have some big bombastic conclusion take place in the house. But to me, that that moment, while I've seen it enough times that I think I've wrapped my head around what they're going for, it still to me is a lesser moment in power and scope than John Russell just handing over the papers, handing over the seance tape and saying, I'm sorry and walking out of the room. That, that to me is the sort of the emotional resolution of, of the story. And um, Senator Carmichael's line to him, Senator Carmichael says, yes. if you ever breathe a word 
of this to anyone. I'll make you wish you were never born, which is yeah. a great line for the subject matter. And boom, he walks out. Scott walks out with a high moral authority. John Russell does. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And there's your moment. Yeah. I yeah. felt the same way. Yeah. But what is happening at that, at that sort of denouement is that John Russell is presumably staring at the medal that he has been handed. And mm -hmm. simultaneous to this, the house is kind of destroying itself. Mm -hmm. uh, the the spirit of the of the dead boy is uh, just ablaze with rage, literally and metaphorically. And there is this sort of simultaneous in the real. Senator Carmichael is seeing a vision of the truth he has been in denial of, and then he has a heart attack and dies. But and, why is the, why is he ablaze with rage? He he wasn't rageful up until that moment in the movie. Right, he just wanted right. help. Yes, and I think that's the other piece that if there were a different pass on this film, I feel like some of the rules need to be for, more firmly established. I the 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 powers of this spectral being are like limitless. He's somehow able to turn over the detective's car and like mm -hmm. kill the detective's car when the detective's not even in the house. He's somehow yeah, that able was, to that was confusing. Yeah, right, right. He's somehow able to summon the astral projection of Senator Carmichael and, you know, do all that while setting the house ablaze and moving things around with, uh, you know, his mind or his essence or whatever it is. So I think if there were a different sort of sheen on the film, it they should have established some of those parameters a bit more effectively. As it stands, some of those shots are still effective. Some of them still sort of create the the sensibility that you that that I think they're going for. So I don't completely mind them, but I think they don't hold up under tremendous logical scrutiny. You press on them even just a little bit and they begin to to kind of crumble. So if somebody were to say, "Hey, there's there was a lot of really good stuff there, but yeah, I didn't uh, like where what were they all adding up to?" I wouldn't blame them. When I I was I was really pissed when the wheelchair is chasing oh. Scott's wife down the stairs cuz I'm like why are you doing this, kid? She's <laughs> right. done everything to help you. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And there is something, perhaps when we get to theme, there is something that I'm going to bring up that stood out to me this time around that maybe won't be a defense of the film, but is at least a reading I'm bringing to it that maybe might unify some of that. But it, it's a bit of a stretch, I'll, I'll say right out the gate. Well, let me ask um, this. So, sure, sure. Uh, as Bill already referenced, it is two hours. I watched it a little late. I did watch it all, mm. but a possible dislike I had that I'm open to y'all correcting me on if, if it's there to be corrected. So one, again, if you know nothing about this film, it opens with George C. Scott and a wife of his, his wife, the character's yeah. wife and daughter pushing a car that has clearly been immobilized somehow up a snowy embankment of a mountain. And <laughs> it felt like, it felt like a Simpsons episode in my head. It was just like, cause, cause again, I don't know what this movie's about. All I know is the title right, of George C. Scott. Right. And so I'm like, Oh, I know George C. Scott. They're going to die. Right. Is it <laughs> going to be right now? Like, like, like I'm picturing these, these like, you know, like, is the car going to roll backwards over them? Like just stupid stuff. Right. Right. And right, then right. like within minutes, like, Oh, <laughs> that mm -hmm. happened. You know, <laughs> it, was, yeah. it, was very, <laughs> yeah. it was a very dramatic feeling. Uh, or pivot there. So I guess what I'm pivoting to as a possible dislike that, I, that I'm open to correction on mm. mainly, but just, you know, was I, was I as attentive as I maybe should have been 
is there are moments where it feels like the John Russell character is inhabiting a different story. Like mm-hmm. I, I didn't feel as much in my one time viewing this, that the actions of the character are driven by the loss he feels at the beginning. Thus it had the feeling of, well, how necessary or important was that for us to see? Right. Does that make sense? No, it absolutely makes sense. So, like, so it's a really dramatic <laughs> passing in the sure, first five minutes. Sure. Well, and one of the things that I've seen is like there's this really weird, uh, if you can visualize, I'm going to try to describe this the best way I can. If you can visualize two triangles that overlap and, and they are like one triangle kind of starts at one side on the left side. And then as it thins to its point, the other one is kind of building. That's the way I feel about the story of him with his, the loss of his wife and daughter. And then the story that is taking place with this sort of changeling haunting that's happening. I feel like, the first half of the movie focuses really heavy on that. And then there's this connecting point. There's a very specific line that the psychic medium that comes to his house for the seance says that uh, they're trying to, that the spirit is trying to reach him, reach out to him through that loss. Mm -hmm. And so there's a connecting point right there. But, but once that is made, then it feels like it's only the changing thing. There's no emotional resolution. Yes. To John Russell's loss, he doesn't get, gain a sense of catharsis to the loss to of his wife. That, and it wasn't no, absolutely. just my yeah. foggy brain at 11 o'clock. No, no. I definitely think there's th- that's something that um, I think could be very fairly criticized of the film is that it loses a bit of that. Really, it makes something that in a, a different piece might be completely substantial more utilitarian where now it's just the thing that right. makes this house that reach out to him to rent yes. the house. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> even got him, got him to rent the house and then even got him involved in this whole, like sure. uncovering yeah, this yeah, mystery yeah. as it were, you know? Um, I will say, uh, so there's a line that's going to come up when I, when I talk later in theme, but I love this line. It, it's one of my favorite lines in the film. I have some reasons for that, but it's a relatively unobtrusive line. It's certainly unpoetic, but I love the line after they've had the seance and everything is, is uh, sort of coming to that other fruition. uh, John Russell is sitting down with Claire, the the realtor. um, And when he's sitting there, he says that uh, the the lady at her office, which the name, Mm -hmm. I didn't write the name down. Uh, Yeah. 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 That she said the house didn't want people. He says, she's mistaken. Whatever it is, it's trying desperately to communicate. Yeah. And there's something about the way Scott delivered that line and something about that line being there at that moment that always galvanizes me a bit. It's something about like in most haunted house films, there would be some element of like, oh, my God, we got to get out of here. Or, you know, that it's really more about sort of escaping the threat. And there is something to that line and its presence at that point in the film that I do love because it does sort of propel the latter part of the narrative to say like, wait a second, this is not a house trying to get rid of people. This is a house trying to reach people. This is a house trying desperately to be heard. And again, that'll pivot back into where I'm going with theme. But, uh, but I did, I did love that line. Um, and I love my last sort of big like uh, before we, you know, mention some other things or possibly move on. Um, I do love that John Russell's character, his ultimate goal in this situation is uncovering the truth rather than extorting 
you know, advancement or blackmail or anything. He he does just sort of adopt very quickly this persona of just I want to get at the truth and I want to expose the truth. Don't need to profit from it. Don't need to even have notoriety from exposing this truth. I just want the truth to be told in the appropriate place. Um, and there is something from a character standpoint, there's something pretty noble about that. And there's something that really endears the character of John Russell all the more to me for having that approach to, uh, to what he's after. Um, so that's all I had for likes, dislikes, Bill, Nathan, either of you have anything else that you want to mention before we move into the, Go, the scares this film has? Well, I, I would just add that the whole thing taught me never help ghost children. <laughs> I'm not. I'm, I'm not, seriously. I'm not helping ghost children no, because no. you can't do enough for them. <laughs> this, it's like Are we talking about children. real children or <laughs> ghost children? Because be I've got enough. three that agree with you. If, if, if I if I dig up a house, go down in a well and find your bones, and that's not enough. I'm sorry. I can't help you. <laughs> like uh, you just so need to get the come, ghost. Don't adults. come whispering to me. Don't come speaking through seances, and don't come with your. Because I'm not listening. No, it's true. That's it's hysterical. True. You're like, I I know what real kids are like, or living kids. You know, like if this is going to be at all like that, yeah, I'm good. Not I got doing my hands this. full. You <laughs> know, in the this. in the spirit of that note. I kept waiting in the middle run of the film when all this wackadoo starts happening at the house of John Russell. I kept waiting for Randy Newman to start singing strange things are happening to me. You know, it was just. <laughs> wow. I got a Buzz Lightyear on my bed. Um... <laughs> <laughs> um, no, so... I think that's a wonderful observation. That's great, Bill. Uh, let me just glance real here. No, this is just me making plot notes, story notes. Sure. Oh, sure. I did love. For the theater people in the house, George C. Scott may not know how to play the piano, but he can take a fall like a like like he knows what he's doing. That I rewound that. I was like, that was a hell of a fall. Good on you, George. When he's on the phone and he hyperventilates Absolutely. and then he just passes out. It is you so know, you yeah. know George C. Scott was like, No, 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 I got this. I'm good. Wide shot. Wide shot. Like, no, George, we can we can do a couple of composites, you know, cutting close. No, 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 so I got funny. it. You know, it's really funny. I don't remember the exact year. There is a, it was in proximity to this chronologically, but like he did a, at one point he did a one man stage presentation and I forget the name of the play, but where he played Clarence Darrow Uh and, uh, and it was a one man stage show and it was in proximity to the filming of this so you know like okay that all of all of these sort of classical techniques are in his mind sure. yeah, yeah and yeah. uh yeah it you can you can tell we're all theater people that these are the <laughs> things that we zone in on <laughs> yeah when i'm like i stood I sit up at that i'm like dang that's a pro- that's a professional <laughs> <laughs> none of this oh green gosh. screen garbage oh my gosh um all right so, uh, getting into a couple of scares. So, um, Bill, again, as our guest, I'm gonna, I'm gonna allow you to sort of lead the charge on this. Was there any particular moment that stood out to you that was like, this was, this was pretty creepy or this was pretty scary? Well, certainly not the ones they wanted me to be scared of. <laughs> <laughs> anytime that, anytime that I sense a filmmaker wants me to be scared, mm-hmm. I absolutely turn away and fold my arms. I will not allow you to manipulate. Uh. Speaking gotcha. of children, what? Bill. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, there were two moments that truly 
horrified me. And one was the drowning of the child. Oh, yeah, God. Yeah, yeah. Which yeah, was because I came into it with no idea what was going to happen. Yeah. Sure, and it was sure. more extended. It could have been just the father stands over him. We cut to the boy's eyes mm. going wide. Then we go to the dead body. But it was a real damn drowning. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And, and that freaking, scared me. Yeah. And, um, and then the other moment was when Scott first went up into the bedroom. Or really, I think <clears> the moment before that where a rock came through the window and he sees yeah. a piece of glass. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, that chilled me, both of those two. <laughs> that dumb yeah. kid. Who throws <laughs> rocks inside a house? <laughs> Doesn't he know um, better? Yeah. Um, what about for you, Nathan? Um, yeah, the 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 uh, echoing Bill's note there in terms of when you're when you're learning the movie as it's presenting itself, as opposed to knowing yeah. going in. Like I didn't know go haunted house story. I didn't know. Oh my gosh, there is an extended drowning of a child. Like mm, this right. is just it just keeps going. Um, mm-hmm. So that was pretty rough. Um, I thought the seance was pretty intense. Uh, yeah, the one that kind of made me jump the most in terms of just like you know, uh, arrested me was honestly the mirror crash at the end. Um, oh, sure. Sure. When he's, when he's staring into the, into the mirror, which, you know, to Bill's point is clearly telegraphed. But again, I just wasn't thinking about it. Like, Oh God. <laughs> right. A, right. Creepy face in the mirror. And there oh. are some, there are some manipulative techniques, like obviously during the seance, which I do think by and large, the seance is a pretty effective scene. Oh the, yeah. The, the, the moment when that whole silvery obelisk that they've got is yeah. is pivoting, but then what creates the jump is the glass shooting off and and crashing into the wall from across the way like that. I remember I was like, whoa, okay. Like I had I've seen the movie a few times and I could not <laughs> quite remember. Like, oh no, I forgot that that's the that that's what happens here. Um, I do feel like something about the actor who is delivering the, the the actor playing the medium who's delivering the uh the papers and the pages that cold deadpan stare mm-hmm. and just that monotonous voice is I, I find it really really effective um the the other aspect to it and still for me sort of the 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 pinnacle of just pure fright uh bill you made a point earlier that they kind of pulled out every trick of the trade to get it to, to be unnerving when he's listening back to the recording and begins to hear the, the white noise projections of like, you know, the ghost will whisper no before the medium said no. But then at one point when the ghost is just talking and the recording is just the, the child's high pitched voice and that extremely rapid tracking shot, that's just flowing all the way through the house. Probably every time I see that, I get a few goosebumps because just that whole effect of this rampant, frenetic spirit crying out in this in this high-pitched sort of cherubic voice, um, always that always stands out to me as something that's like, that's a, that's a pretty effective, for me at least, that's a pretty effective little chill scare um, that I think is, is, is hard for me not to be pretty unnerved by it. Um, the last thing that I wrote down in my little scares bucket was, I, I don't even know that it's really so much a scare. I just love it. 
I love the thick, hollow banging sound that they have reverberating around through the house. It sounds yeah. to me like a cathedral door slamming. Like I just, mm. I love the thickness of it. I love how encompassing it is. Um, so I don't even know. I, I do think that it. it well, it's, a it's great pretty awful sur- when you connect the dots of what it is. Right. Like, oh god. Right. That's yeah. Terrible. And and the reason that I, again, story wise, the reason I love how thick and encompassing it sounds is. They seem to at least have taken a moment's account into the fact that that banging is what it would have sounded like underwater. I know that's grim and horrific, but sure. that's what that banging would have sounded like if it were magnified by taking right, place, right. you know, underwater or you know that kind of that kind of sound. Um, actually, what's interesting is now that I say that, I think water dampens sound. I don't think it. We won't. Don't think too hard about it, Reed. You know what? Yeah, like. <laughs> I'm gonna need to go away, rewatch the movie, come back. <laughs> Give me just a minute. Um, but uh, but you know, so just strike that. We'll we'll, we'll yeah, edit yeah, all of that out. You don't have to be an uh, expert on everything. <laughs> <laughs> just just most things. Right. Um, so that was the last thing I had in scares. Uh, does anybody else want to mention anything before we maybe sort of uh, dip our toes into some deeper waters? You and those water references. Wow, that's saturates uh, the film. I. Oh my gosh. <laughs> um. <laughs> I mean, you know, was it scary? Was it a little silly? Was it a little of both? The wheelchair chasing Claire? It was, it was pretty wild. It was like, uh, okay. All right. It's pretty wild. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> they definitely picked a good wheelchair. Yeah. That's a scary looking wheelchair, you know? <laughs> she sells it so hard. She, she they tries. Are, oh, they're all, they're working. She, yes. I she mean, tries very, very hard to sell he that. He falls moment. like a pro. She, she sells being chased by a ghost wheelchair like a pro. Oh my gosh, this is not scary, but something that George C. Scott, I don't know whether the affectation was his choice or the director's choice, but something that I love is I love while he's listening to the recording and the cigarette just falls out of his hand. Uh, That's a very small touch that I really, really love. Like, he's smoking the cigarette, but then suddenly he's so all-encompassed with this thing that then the cigarette just drifts out of his hand. And I I, I love that small little touch. I thought that was, I thought that was really great. Um, well, I, so... I'm gonna I'm gonna take a second here, and Bill. Again, I'm gonna defer to you, but but I'm happy to kind of lead the charge. I've got something that uh, this is something that, as we say every time this occurs, I don't know that what I'm gonna scratch at thematically is can be rightly considered pure text of the film. I think a lot of it is something that I'm bringing to it, a mindset, a mentality, but I don't want to be too presumptuous. I want to give you an opportunity, Bill. Was there anything as you were watching it, as you were sort of thinking about it after the fact that, um, you know, that you would take away to say, hey, I think this is part of what this film's trying to scratch at or what it's trying to say. It's okay if there's nothing, but if there was something, I want to give you an opportunity. No, I've been in too many movies that, reviews say are, are exactly the opposite of what we all were trying to do mm-hmm. but i'm not yeah i'm i'm, I'm never going to venture i guess i'm interested in what you have to say okay sure 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 so something stood out to me this time around and and um i i want to say before i get into this conversation i want particularly the three of us to feel as free as possible to you know just sort of unpack this push against it um Explore it if we want to. One of our mantras is we explore, we don't explain. Um, feel feel what you want to feel about this. But here's what stood out to me. Um, the, the conceit of the film, for, for those who have never seen this film, a brief summary of the plot or my thematic idea is not going to make any sense. George C. Scott loses his wife and daughter in a tragic accident. He's a noted composer, very famous composer. He moves 
to Seattle from New York to take uh, a teaching job, a professorship, and presumably to compose, to uh, just sort of get away, complete change of scenery. While he's there, this house is haunted. You begin to, as the film unravels, begin to, to realize that the house is haunted by a spirit that is the spirit of a child who was murdered by his father. And the reason this child was murdered by his father is because there was a stipulation in this very wealthy estate that the son would inherit the empire as long as he survived to his 21st birthday. But the child was sickly and crippled and feeble and so was not potentially going to survive long enough to have the inheritance. So this father brutally, we've all referenced the scene, brutally murders this child and then finds a another boy, the changeling of the title, finds another boy that he then sort of adopts, takes in. Uh, that boy is away in another country for a number of years, uh, for more than a decade. And so when that boy assumes that identity, comes back to the States to inherit the fortune, pretending to be this father's other child. Now, what the film is not clear about is the film is not clear about the precise timing of when this changeling came into the care of Father Carmichael. Um, but what we know from the film is that this boy, this changeling boy, who grew up to be a famous, popular, presumably, senator and very influential senator uh, standing atop an empire, um, was not entitled to that empire because that empire was bought, essentially, with the life of this innocent, crippled boy. And so he's standing atop this empire that does not belong to him. It's one of my favorite moments in that final confrontation scene where John Russell looks around at the lavish room and he says, none of this belongs to you. Hmm. None of it does. And so here's what I wrote down. To me, the conceit that Senator Carmichael was a substitute for the murdered boy who lives, Senator Carmichael lives in the knowledge and at least partially the active concealment of the truth. We know, even though there's some ambiguity in the final scene about how much he knows, we know he knows something because he's spent the movie trying to stop John Russell from from pursuing this track of thought. So there is some measure of knowledge in his head of what has taken place. Um, but he lives in some degree of active concealment of the truth of the blood on which this empire was built. And that has, for me, some haunting echoes of some of the travesty, the tragedy that we sometimes find ourselves in when we deny the reality of the pain that bought our comfort, the pain that bought our relative ease, our relative establishment. Um, there's some echoes here of politics that I want, that I can't avoid, but I don't want to you know, force this into being a specifically political conversation. Something that frustrates me, and then I'll shut up and, and, and elicit responses. Something that frustrates me tremendously is when people, and it can be on a national level or it can be on a personal level, when they adopt an air of superiority or an air of entitlement um, that lacks gratitude uh, or recognition or any version of acknowledgement for 
the pain again, and in many cases, the mountain of lives that cost it to get them here, to to allow them to live in this state of empire in which they live. And I know I myself get very frustrated when there's not at least some measure of understanding of that dynamic. And instead, uh, one of the things that really stood out to me this time, uh, I promise I'm shutting up soon, but one of the things that really stood out to me this time is Senator Carmichael, when John Russell presents him with the truth, he lashes out in defending his father. He lashes out and he's like, and he knows his father has done a relatively evil thing. He knows it, but he passionately defends his father almost to declaring him a near saint of like he was a loving man and all this stuff. And what was ultimately demanded of him was to come face to face with what his legacy cost other people. I will acknowledge that I'm bringing some mentality to the film, but I also think that what I'm pointing at is there in the film. I mean, I'm not, you know, bringing in uh, extra textual stuff. That is the that is the conceit of this film: is that Senator Carmichael is a changeling built on an empire. He he is pretending to be somebody he's not, and completely ignoring what it cost to put him there. Um, and what do you guys think? Am I completely off base? Am I reading too much extra textual stuff? What uh, What do you guys generally respond to that? Either either one of you, Bill, you got anything? Go ahead, Nathan. Um, I like it. <laughs> uh, Bill, you haven't had the Reed and I in concert here. I'm usually the one who's who's just like, no, Reed, let's push all the buttons. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's I think it's interesting. This being my first viewing, and George C. Scott is such a formidable performer that he's your natural draw, but you, you make a great case. And I don't mean as in it needs, it needs defending because it is there that Carmichael really is the kind of central puzzle piece. I mean, he's the title character. And, Mm -hmm. and so, you know, when you contextual and, and something that you just offered there that is interesting and maybe we can follow if we want in how Carmichael and I'm going to, I'm using this word. You didn't mythologizes his own father. Yes. And, yes. and I think it's interesting. The, the power that is inherent to mythologize a thing. Mm-hmm. And yet also the danger that comes when the, the mythology you build around a person, around uh, a group of people, around a country, um, yeah. sure. Becomes sure. impenetrable to scrutiny and critique. Right. And, and that right. becomes hyper problematic. Um, hmm. because if, if a thing, um, uh, Bill is not bored with my Richard Rohr quotes yet, but maybe by the end of just this conversation, but <laughs> Rohr, uh, uses a, a, I'm paraphrasing grossly here, but basically says anything too big to be criticized will soon be demonic. Hmm. And that just screams at me. You know, it, and, sure, and, right. and, and what is the, what is the architectural, the ar- architecture of the film? You, I'm going to throw the last puzzle piece here. The mythology is so thick that Carmichael mm-hmm. has built that the least of these is crying out for justice and is unheard. Right. Yes. Is unheard, is unseen, 
is ignored is trampled. You know, like like right that that's huge. Um, right. That's well. That's why I'm sorry if I'm cutting you off, but that's no. why that moment just reverberates so much in my spirit. Whatever it is, it's trying desperately to communicate. And so, like, to to pivot into a bit of spiritual language there, it reminds me of the Lord confronting Cain and saying, like, the blood of your brother cries out to me from the ground. Like, there's there's an echo here of what has been wrought that you cannot simply brush off and you cannot simply ignore unilaterally. And I feel like a lot of the times, I love the way you contextualize the, the term mythologizing, a lot of times we build ourselves up in entire landscapes of history and entire landscapes of um, attitude and, and manifest destiny to use a really volcanic sort of connection that says like this, this is who we are supposed to be. And this is who we truly are. And I do believe in the depths of my spirit that there are the least of these crying out for that you know like look we we will not be forgotten we will not be as as much as we and i think rightly so sort of railed against the outbursts of the child at the end there's maybe a degree to where it says like look i'm sick of this i'm sick of not being heard and now i've been given a voice i've been given an outlet i will scream it until until i am heard until i am acknowledged um and i don't think I, I just want to be real intentional about the fact that I don't think the changeling is that high-minded. This sure. is just something that stood out to me that I do think is present in the elements of the film. Um, but uh, but I don't want to, I don't want any listener to think that I think this is what Peter Medic had on his mind when he's making this movie. This is just something that stood out to me as I'm as I'm watching it. Um, but if I yeah, I would add as somebody who's been involved in. 180 movies, maybe like yeah. five of them good. <laughs> More than <laughs> that. Come on. Come on now. No, but that's the great thing about art. When you make it, you have to surrender it, and it means what it means. So right. I don't think you have to at all say, well, it doesn't matter. This isn't what he meant. It doesn't really matter what he meant. He's not here. Oh, right. Yeah. And right. even, even yes. if he was here, it no longer belongs to him. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. I like what you're saying very much. There are two things that come to mind as you were talking, and one is about um, the attitude of not uh, understanding where your benefits of power and wealth came from. And it yeah. reminded me of a great biography of Robert Kennedy. It was called The Last Patrician. Mm. And, and that was the premise of the writer was that um, not Bobby Kennedy himself, but his era was the last generation of great wealth in America, which intrinsically included for children who are growing up in this wealth, you have a responsibility to society because you have been given this gift. Mm, mm, and, yeah, and then right. the other thing to move forward is something you said about um, uh, when beliefs become mythologized and the danger of that. And I love that uh, quote. What was it again? Whatever something what was the demonic quote um whatever uh, effectively um give me a second right is beyond yeah whatever is too big to be criticized will soon be demonic yeah yeah so i use oswald chambers my utmost for his highest for my devotion Um, 30 30 years now i've been Mm. using it 
And every every I try to go to other ones, but I stick with him because he's a hard ass and I like it. <laughs> right. But there's a there's a year there's a page, and every year when I hit it, it challenges me. Where he says, um, and I'm paraphrasing him really grossly, but uh, go through all of your beliefs and discard as many of them as you possibly can. Mm. Mm. And and what he's saying is, in his case because he's strictly talking about Jesus. He says, strip away everything except your belief in the Christ of history and the Christ of faith. Not your beliefs about him, but your belief in him and in the redemption and the atonement, which he says is the cross is the linchpin on which all of time and history turn. Right. And that's his very, that's, of course, that's a very strict um, Christian point of view but you could take that in a larger sense and say sure all of the things that you are quite sure of see how many of them you can be unsure about and feel how liberating that is yeah Mm, mm. well and that's that's a that's such a great sort of principle there and and something that ties well here in the whole mythologizing idea is to to be fair, I wasn't even saying no one. Neither of you are saying I did say this, but for myself, I wasn't even saying mythologizing a thing is wrong. Like we do it, we all do it. We we right. we narrate in hindsight, you know, locally in our own lives and globally in our national lives and international, whatever. Like that is just a th- that's a human mechanism to make sense of the world is is mm-hmm. to is to mythologize a thing. But to the chambers reference there what i love about that and something it's funny like i've i've had this thought gurgling in my spirit for a couple of weeks now it's definitely been during sort of shelter in place time but um i have there's there's one or two peers that immediately come to mind who who post to social media extremely frequently and it's 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 a it's a drumbeat and i'm actually not criticizing them whatsoever i'm i'm in observing this type of behavior and it's people I actually am pretty like-minded with. And so, you know, generally speaking, I would agree with the things they're talking about or writing about or posting. But <laughs> I was joking with my wife about this. Like one of them, like literally the editorial he'll put is just the word bad. It's like a, a, an article and it's like bad, like this bad too. I'm like, well, okay. I mean, you know, like we need a little more like, like substance to chew on here. But as I've sort of processed for myself, my own engagement on things like social media, and this is not for everybody, this is a Nathan thing. But it, it feeds into Bill what you were talking about here, which is I've I've grown that we feels like an odd springboard, but but follow me here. I've grown and want to continue to grow into more more and more uh, lush versions of this. I I've grown disinterested in convincing other people of just about anything, and in mm-hmm. fact, what I have wanted and in some meager fashion think maybe I've done here and there once or twice, 2% of the time is to change my own mind. Mm. And, and I feel like if to your Oswald Chambers sort of idea there, which is strip it all away, right? Like unlearn, um, like to, to, because, because that's, that's when you're left with the good stuff. That's when you're left with the only thing that will sustain you is if you can strip, if, if you can set aside all these identifiers, uh, all of the myth- personal mythologizing you've done over a lifetime that has through, um, you know, social conditioning, through, through church conditioning, through what have you, 
you know, the, the ability to start putting those things down doesn't mean you don't actually end up picking them back up. It just means you, you find what, what needs to be continued to be held. Does that make sense at all? Oh, no, it totally um, does. I've, I've referenced this. Uh, I don't know why the scripture keeps coming back up, but like every time this, this conversation about like sort of tearing down our myths, tearing down our, our comforts, all those kind of things, I just, I keep echoing back to, Jesus telling the people after the riot in the temple, tear down this temple, and in three days I'll make it rise again. And he, of course, we know, is talking about himself and his his resurrection, but I think there is something there is something very crucial about that rhythm of occurrence that, like, you know, t- tear down this temple and then I will make it rise again <laughs> is not just about, uh, you know, Oh, you're going to need to grow or evolve, or you're going to need to have some version of newness to add on to what was already present. No, it's like, no, 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 we're, we're going to be moving through death, and then we're going to be moving through death into new life, and that's going to be the hardest of things, because to die, that means everything has to go. That means it all has to to be subject to the cross and subject to the tomb and it all has to pass. <laughs> this is going to be like, y'all invite me place. here and neither of you ever let me talk. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm not criticizing you. I'm criticizing myself because I'm like, wait, 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 wait. I got more. <laughs> we promise we'll let you speak. Bill. You, you just use this phrase and, and Bill, you, we, the three of us are recording before even the launch pad for Reed and I, the fear of God are currently in a series and that series is about death and dying. We, we, mm. we launched last week. This episode will release, uh, a few, you know, a two, the next Tuesday from now. Um, the Friday before it. No, I'm sorry. It's two Tuesdays from now. Regardless, the, the opening salvo of this series, uh, is about mourning and about loss and about dying because, yeah, right, right. Because of the moment in culture we're in and Reed and I, we just really, felt passionate. Like we just need to talk about these things. And it's interesting, Reed, you just said about dying again, referencing roar and this notion of initiation that we reference on infinity war. They refer to initiation as a death before dying, like mm. learning how to die. And I think because, because your example, your scriptural example of the temple is, is just, it's too big, right? It's, it's big for mm. our brains and our hearts and our spirits to kind of be like, okay, sure, well, but that's Jesus yeah. and that's scripture and that's, you know, first century type stuff. Okay. Well, sure. But life itself is many deaths, right? Many M I N I and, and our ability mm. or not to embrace those things, you know, right, the, right. the Carmichael isn't wrong for being at his station. Mm. Period. He is wrong because he denies where his station originates. Mm, right. Right. Yes. Like, yes. No, it's not I, yeah, about right. don't be or do X, Y, or Z. It's about recognize what emboldens you to even be able to do or be X, Y, and Z and how right. you doing those things or being that thing affects others in like fashion. Yeah, no, I totally, I totally understand. Just sit in silence and hope that Bill jumps in and read. (laughs) (laughs) Bill, what what else you got? What would justice have been? Carry it forward. Uh, Pretend that Senator Carmichael said, "I wanted to do the right thing." What does he do? Mm -hmm. What would be the logical outcome of it within the world of the movie? 
I think it's a fantastic question. Yeah, I think if I'm going to take my first pass at that, I think obviously he's going to bring this uh, truth to light and and share it with the world and potentially forfeit whatever inheritance or whatever um, station as a senator, as a man of influence that he um, would have previously enjoyed. Forfeited to whom? Uh, good question. Perhaps just Does lose it matter? It. I don't, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. No, that's a good question. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Maybe maybe a new figure would come up. There's there's obviously nobody to give the wealth of the empire to. Maybe go back to the people, but that's a real beast to try to, you know, uh, logically navigate. Um, so yeah, that's a really good question. I'm not sure. Well, but I think I think what your question sparks for me, Bill, as I think about there was a political event a couple of years ago that was all over the news and all over the headlines. And what it echoed in me was how ill-equipped, especially men, especially men are at loss and, mm. and relinquishment of power, maybe career, maybe money, maybe uh perception mm. of power, career and money. And, you know, why I think your question is so great is it does invite that exercise, that sort of spiritual even exercise of like, okay, you know, one, what does it look like? You use the word justice. What does it look like for me to practice justice in life? Like, hmm. what does that look like? Practically speaking. And it, part of it looks like at least being conscientious of, uh, and scrutinizing how my life is propped up by others experience and choices and actions. Um, you know, we're, we're in a very particular moment in time where the, the phrase essential workers is such a, you know, echoes through our, our world, um, you know, and, and, and the, the world itself is putting down and dying in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. but, but again, that's, that's getting way too global too fast, but, for me, it's assessing, okay, what does it look like to lose and how, mm. and how and am I okay with that? And because yeah. I think we, we have to practice losing. We have to know that experience in order to be faithful, I think, to, I would say, God, to ourselves, to mm. those around us is, is the knowledge of and the understanding of and the comprehension of just loss. And we're yeah. really bad at that. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. Um, this this feels uh, like a like a nice moment to kind of wind things down. I I don't want to. If there's anything that either of you have that's really burning that you want to say, then I want to invite you to say it with no uh, reservations whatsoever. But if not, then we can pivot over into our metric. Uh, Bill, Nathan, you good? Mm. I'm yep. I'm just All proud right. of you. I'm proud of you, Reed. I, I came. I was like, well, Bill's our guest and Reed loves this movie. So I'm just going to get out of the way. So good for good on you. That's a good, 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 good little theme you sort of wrangled. Well, I appreciate it. Hey, it's, and you know what? I'll say, like, I didn't work for it. I will say that no, it was, I, that's, I think it's but there. No, no, that's why I'm saying, like, like this particular viewing and, and Bill, we say this so many times on the show. It's like, once you watch movies, knowing you're going into a conversation like this, it really does pivot what you take away from the movie uh, versus when you just sort of watch it for entertainment value, which is its own 
you know, it, it has its own merits. Um, but I've seen this movie four or five times. Never did it jump out to me until huh. preparing for this conversation that this was something inherent in the plot. So, um, so yeah, there it is. Um, so with that in mind, we're going to pivot over to our very specific metric, the fog meter, where we rank this film based on its fear measurement and its God measurement, its scares and its substance. Um, so on the fear measurement, I'll go first. Um, uh, we're going to rank these bill on zero to 10. And I think fear for me, I think that seance scene and the listening to the recording after it is pretty effective. The drowning scene is pretty harrowing. I think it is dated, but I think some of those moments still make it effective enough for me to give this a seven on the fear measurement. Um, Nathan, what would you what would you give it? Um, you know, I, I, part of me thinks George C. Scott's commitment carries a lot of does a lot of heavy lifting. Um, sure, sure. Uh, that said, I mean, like I wasn't joking when it was over, I was like, ah, <laughs> how fast can I get up the bed and get my contacts out, my teeth brushed? Um, uh, I'll go with uh, a six. Okay. Bill, how about for you? Zero to 10. On a big screen in a dark room with no other tabs open, eight. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah, gotcha. I love the qualifiers. That's perfect. <laughs> you can't but, have Facebook open on another tab. Oh, and no, no, no. You won't, no. You won't get it. No, but, absolutely. But, and, and, and for this, the two reasons that Reed pointed out, the writing, the sort of automatic writing that she did mm -hmm. as her husband, who obviously had done this many times, mm -hmm. knew what was going to happen. And he pulled away the paper. That was she intense. She never hesitated. She just kept writing. That creeped me out and really got yeah. into my skin. And sure. the monotone of him saying, what is your name? And she writes, and he just says, Joseph. Oh man, yeah, right. Uh, and and him listening back, uh, the cigarette fall, the mm -hmm. creep up the stairs. Yeah, de it, yeah, definitely yeah. an eight. Yeah, nice, nice, good. Um, for the God meter, its general substance, I am really torn because I do feel like what I brought to it was text of the film. I don't, you know, I didn't have to pretend something was there that wasn't, but I do think there's a lot that just sort of, uh, you know, gleamed out of it that that maybe wasn't inherent in it. Um, I'm gonna give this a six on the on the God meter, its general substance factor. Uh, I think that feels fair. Nathan, what about for you? A five. I think five. Okay. I think I, I'm in full agreement. Once you started painting that picture, I was like, yeah, that's there. I just don't the movie really knows it's there. <laughs> Not, right, <laughs> you know? right. I think that's fair. Um, yeah, sure. So yeah, Absolutely. I'm going to go with the five. Yeah. How about for you, Bill? Four, because yeah. there was no catharsis mm. that mm. we saw. There was right. no dealing with the death. The presenting problem was this man is undergoing a harrowing loss and we're going to yes. go on a journey with him where he'll deal with the loss. Right. But the loss either A, didn't matter as much as we thought it did, or B, it was still there at the end, and I would have liked to have seen more of a, spir <laughs> a spiritual component to his yeah. journey. If he sure. had a journey. Yeah, exactly. Well, you, you and, just and kind you of... Know what he may have, maybe he had a journey, but it ended up on, on, in the, lost in the edit. Yeah. Sure. You, you sure. just articulated what I was scratching out earlier, Bill, which is like, wait, didn't we start at, emotion, <laughs> at emotional spot A, and then just that right. just kind of evaporated by the midpoint? It got so drowned funny. in the bathtub. It's so true. It's so true. Um, well, with those numbers in play, that means that we officially give 
The Changeling, directed by Peter Medic and starring George C. Scott and Trish Van Devere, a 6 out of 10 on the fog meter, which feels right. That feels right. Um, perhaps the more appropriate question, which I'm going to come to Bill first for, is would you recommend The Changeling for people to watch? What <laughs> Good point. Um, I would say a general a general audience. Would Not you say people that who is- have been adopted under <laughs> surreptitious means and now have inherited great wealth? Not those it's, people. <laughs> they're going to have real problems. Yeah, I mean, no, <laughs> I'm, be I'm being triggered. serious. Yeah, Do you sure. mean pe- people like you and Nathan are the average person who says, "Hey, I saw Tiger King. It was awesome." <laughs> <laughs> right. So, actually, give uh, give both uh, designations. Uh, if you're going to recommend it for folks like me and Nathan, if you're going to recommend it for your common average viewer, yes, for you, no, for them. Gotcha. Because I don't, I don't want them to watch something else that they say I didn't understand it because I get really sick of hearing that guy. <laughs> <laughs> that makes I perfect didn't, sense. I didn't understand. You're not supposed to understand it. It's art. You're supposed to experience it. But right. I, my questions weren't answered. They're right. Not, yeah. It's only supposed to make you have questions. Yeah. Yeah. I'm speaking my language. Boy, that no, sounded so bitter. I no, know. No, 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 no. no, no. That's you're you're at home, Billy. We're all you're bitter. Right here. Home. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I know this because every time I have a Facebook post in which I try with a general population to begin a conversation yeah. of yeah. any sort of substance, it immediately devolves into argumentative minutia. So yeah, I'm not recommending so anything right. to anybody. <laughs> yeah, you're so right. No, you're so right. You're so right. Nathan, how about for you? What would you say? Uh, I just love the phrase argumentative minutia. That's a really good one. I'm going <laughs> to That's true. Chuck that away. Um, uh, I think Scott's performance... Uh, it'd be pretty half-hearted, honestly. Um, I okay, think, so, yeah. I think it's worth watching because it's part of the canon. It's worth watching for his performance. Otherwise, there's been a lot better, more interesting versions of this in the last 40 years. Yeah. Well I, I said. Did. Yeah. Very I don't well disagree. Said. Yeah. I don't disagree. And I think my recommendation is going to be very specific, even more specific than, <laughs> than, uh, than we've gone before. If you are looking for a good haunted house movie you have not seen, yes. Watch the Changeling. If you're if you're looking for a good ghost story or a good haunted house movie you haven't seen already, that that should that should be one that you should check out. The Venn diagram um, just it just keeps contracting. <laughs> it's like keeps going down. Um, but I'm 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 with Bill and with you, Nathan. That's like to the common viewer. I don't know. I don't know that it's that it's really that accessible. I don't know that it's really that rewarding. Um, beyond its admittedly very visceral frights there in the in the middle of the piece so bit of a middle ground recommendation from the three of us right now which which feels appropriate um well i want to thank you very very much bill for coming on the show again we really appreciate having you um thanks for what you brought to the conversation uh we we're going to have you back uh at the next opportunity we can uh but bill before we sign off where can people find you we talked about your podcast pitch that again where else can people find you and what you do well, I want to thank you for having me because this was very cathartic because I was able to be grumpy. <laughs> yeah. In fact, Anytime. I was so grumpy that I said, no, I look really bad and I don't want to be on camera. <laughs> and, and then I was allowed to be grumpy about the movie too and children go. So thank you. If Absolutely. After, you know if, what's hilarious about that, Bill, is I was worried because you and Reed had already connected and, and have been kind of friendship connected for a little while now and 
knowing your knowledge and, and general breadth of the horror field, I was like, man, I think Reed really likes this movie. If Bill really likes this movie, I'm going to feel real out of place <laughs> if, I'm, if I'm ambivalent about this movie. <laughs> so I'm glad to, you are welcome to be grumpy, friend. So if, if despite all of that um, churlishness, <laughs> and one of my favorite words, and nobody uses it anymore. That's a good if, one. Despite all of that, who wanted to find me, all they have to do is just look for Bill Obers Jr. That's my name on everything. And I even joined TikTok the other day. Wow. Oh, no. I expect wow. to see you dancing real soon. <laughs> yes, I'm I'm so I'm literally on all available platforms as Bill Obers Jr. Awesome. That's okay, perfect. That thank sounds you great. For being here, Bill. Sincerely. Oh, you. I really enjoyed it, guys. Um, Bill, thank you so much again for joining us for this conversation. Nathan, thank you as always for having this conversation with me. And as we say on every episode, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. And in that spirit, we encourage you to fear nothing else and be on your way rejoicing. We'll see you next time. See you everybody. next week, guys. Bye. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. And you can continue the conversation in a variety of ways. Start by visiting thefearofgodpodcast.com for all the latest episodes and news, as well as for merchandise and how to contact us. You can follow us on Twitter, at the fear of God, on Instagram, at fearofgodpodcast, or join the Facebook Fear of God discussion group. Special thanks to Jacob Hunt of jacobhuntcomics.com for our artwork to Lee Wright and Reed Lackey for our theme music, and to Tyler Smith and MoreThanOneLesson.com for making our show possible. Lastly, be sure to subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice, and if you listen to us through iTunes, we would greatly appreciate a rating and a review. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.